You're listening to The Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program and welcome to a Monday. I know a lot of people don't care for Mondays, but if you look at Mondays as a way to perhaps turn new leaves, start things new, start afresh, it can be invigorating. Perhaps you and your team are not exactly wowing the boss at work. Maybe you've been slack and maybe things have not been going your way. Well, Mondays are a great time to try and turn that around. Take a step forward. Maybe repair the relationship a little bit with the boss. Now, if you consider the provincial government to be the employee of the people of this province and of voters, then Todd Smith is doing precisely that today. The new minister who is in charge of the autism file, he's the Minister of Children, Community, and Social Services, saying that things are going to be better. And as Dalton McGinty used to like to say all the time, it's never too late to do the right thing. He was often laughed at for saying that, but there's an element of truth in there, perhaps. So here now is the blurb from the Ford government's news release on the changes it has made to the autism file. Ontario is continuing to listen to families of children with autism and the Autism Advisory Panel. Based on their feedback, the province is expanding the scope of the Autism Expert Panel to provide advice on what a new needs-based and sustainable autism program would look like. To facilitate that work, Ontario is extending existing behavior plans and continuing to bring children off the wait list to ensure continuity of service for families. Now that's the blurb. But here is the new minister. Keep in mind that Mr. Smith has taken over for Lisa McLeod on this. Here's the new minister with some contrition over the government's previous attempt at a program redesign. We took an initial attempt at program redesign. On this final point, it's clear to me that we didn't get the redesign right the first time. And I'm here to tell you that we will now. My next guest is an economist, but most, more recently has been on the airwaves with his other perhaps more important job, and that is being a father to two children who are on the autism spectrum. Mike Moffat joins me on the line. Hi, Mike. Hi. Let's get to your initial broad strokes of what your reaction is to the announcement today. Well, we didn't learn too much uh, today. I mean, it sounds like when they do redesign this this program, uh, that it will look even more different than the, the the current program. Though, again, we knew that they were going to do some level of redesign. That's why they have this extra panel. But really, all we know is that uh, the new program won't be rolled rolled out until April 2020. So that's another eight or nine months away, uh, and that exist uh, kids who have existing support packages, they'll get those extended for up to six months, and that, that is a good news story. But other than that, we really don't know a whole lot. You know, we don't know what this new program's going to look like. There hasn't been any change uh, to their sort of reported budgets. They say they're going to stick into the, the, the same budget they were talking that same $600 million they were talking about before. So we actually didn't learn a whole lot today other than, again, uh, we'll have to wait till April 2020 to get a new plan, and kids under the existing plan will, will have their support extended. The new minister talked about that the previous redesign was not good enough. Here is the minister talking about 
their previous attempt, the government's previous, previous attempt, and the anxiety that it caused for families much like yours. I fully understand uh, the anxiety, as I mentioned, that uh, the parents have gone through over the last year. Uh, I'm committed to getting this right. We are certainly sorry for the anxiety that this has caused parents across Ontario. Uh, we are committed, though, as a group uh, to making sure uh, that we get this program right. Sorry for the anxiety caused. Does that go any way to smoothing things over, Mike? Um, I'm, uh, it's nice to have a, 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 that acknowledged because um, there has been a lot of uh, there has been a lot of anxiety, and I, I do think that the minister does want want to get this right. But you know, there's going to be a lot more anxiety uh, because we don't know what this new program is going to look like. Again, it's not going to roll out till April uh, 2020, and until then, we have. A uh, very wasteful existing program that uh, doesn't help uh, kids that have higher needs and actually gives far too much uh, resources uh, to those like my daughter who are much, much lower needs. So, you know, yes, I mean, it, it's nice to have it acknowledged that they made a mistake, but of course they wouldn't be fixing this in the first place unless uh, they had made a mistake. So, yeah, it's better than nothing, but uh, still is not helping us uh, get our our kids get the help they deserve. Of course, Lisa McLeod was the minister previously in charge of this file, and earlier on this radio station, Kelly Cotrera, our host previous, asked uh, Laura Kirby McIntosh, who is the president of the Ontario Autism Coalition, about uh, Miss McLeod and what she feels about her. You brought up Lisa McLeod, the former minister. How much blame do you think should rest on her shoulders with the the autism uh, file, how it went south for the uh, PCs and for families in Ontario? Oh, I won't mince words here, all of us. Wow. I, I <laughs> Words can't express how disappointed I am by her lack of, of leadership and, and compassion on this file. I I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive her. Mike Moffat on the line. Do you concur on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she was the one uh, that designed uh, this program. She could have easily, you know, consulted with parents. She was the one uh, that went to service providers and others who, uh, you know, had concerns about the program and basically bullied them, said it's going to be a long four years unless you, you know, publicly support uh, this program. So, so absolutely, I, I think the community does, myself included, uh, does blame McLeod uh, for this mess. You know, now the Premier and Minister Smith have a chance to get it right. Again, we're, I think we're all disappointed uh, that it's going to take till April 2020 uh, to fix this, but, you know, they do, they do have an opportunity here. I just want to play one more Todd Smith clip here, and, and this is where he sort of defers when asked about the wait list and will there still be a wait list once this new program is in place. You know, it's going to be up to, uh, to those at the autism panel to determine what services are provided, how many hours of service that uh, will be uh, reasonable uh, for clinicians to be diagnosing as far as, not diagnosing, but uh, offering as far as, uh, as services go for children in need. Um, so so I, I know that we can, uh, we can get to a point uh, where we all will feel comfortable and very proud of the program. And Mike, I guess that's your point about not really being much of an answer there. 
Well, it, it isn't. Uh, you know, we don't know what this looks like. And, and yes, there's an advisory panel, but we have to re- remember that there are an advisory panel. You know, the, the language that Minister Smith was using uh, suggested that they, you know, they were they were actually designing the, this new program, and that's you know certainly not going to be the case. Uh, you know, they can absolutely. Um, consult on the design of it, you know, but the buck stops at the minister. You know, the minister and the ministry are the ones who uh, have to design uh, this program. So he could ultimately decide what this program looks like and whether or not there would be a waiting list. And he did mention uh, later that, you know, he said, yes, there there's going to be a, a waiting list. So, it is, you know, they really have gone full circle here uh, because the whole sort of reason, the whole sort of unique selling proposition of the conservative plan was that there would be no waiting lists. And now they're suggesting, well, in fact, yeah, there are, there are going to be waiting lists. All right. Mike Moffitt uh, is the father of two kids on the autism spectrum. I really appreciate your perspective, Mike. Thanks so much. No, thank you for having me. We just want to pivot real quickly to what is going in Markham, on in Markham and that absolutely tragic story that you heard about in the news. And I have a question for you. Should police tell us more about what's happening in Markham? Should police tell us more about those murders? Do you feel like you, as either just a member of the public or perhaps you live in that neighborhood, do you feel like you deserve more information? There was a press conference this morning, just a little bit over an hour ago, uh, where it... Uh, It was remarkable for what we did not hear. Identities of the deceased? None. Cause of death? No. Relationship of the accused to the deceased? No information on that. York Regional Police Constable Andy Pattenden says that Menhaz Zaman is now facing four counts of first-degree murder after four bodies were found in a home in Markham. Now, York Regional Police are stressing to the community that they are not looking for anyone else in this case. Reassure the community that uh, York Regional Police uh, has been here throughout the night, been here ever since we got that report, um, and uh, I can guarantee that this community is very concerned. Uh, there were 200 plus people out last night when I was here at the scene, and we want to reassure them that we do have this person in custody. He's now facing charges, and uh, if anyone needs any sort of emotional support or help dealing with this very traumatic event, we'd urge them to seek that, that help and support that they might need. I think that perhaps some of that emotional support would be would be helped by some more information. Now, this is a thorny question here because obviously we want police to be able to do their jobs. We do not in any way, because we want information in the public, you know, jeopardize an investigation or the possibility of a of trial, a successful prosecution. But when we come back, I am going to go step through step what it is that we do know and don't know about this case and ask you the question whether or not you trust the police to be the arbiters of what information comes out and what does not. Are the police unnecessarily hiding behind bureaucracy and procedure? Let's talk about Toronto police because I predicting if the RCMP press conferences go like they have been in Manitoba, we're probably not going to hear a whole lot. There'll be a lot of, I can't tell you that, I don't know, I can't tell you that, I don't know. And that takes us to uh, to Markham, where we have this incredible situation, a 23-year-old man now charged with first-degree murder in what police are describing as a quadruple homicide. York Regional Police Constable Andy Pattenden 
says Menhaz Zaman is facing four counts of first-degree murder after four bodies were found in a home in Markham. Patnit said the victims are three adult women and one man. Global's Priya Sam was at this news conference just a little while ago that I've been talking about and joins us on the line. Hi, Priya. Hi, good afternoon, Alan. Were you struck here by how little information there was at that press conference? Absolutely. You know, there was so much media here, and I think we all thought that we would get a lot more information uh, than we did. Really, the only new piece of information we got at that press conference uh, was the name of the suspect, which, you know, quite frankly, was sort of out there before the press conference anyway, uh, and um, and his age. And uh, also, we also found out that the victims were three women and one man. Um, but that was it. No uh, more information about uh, how these people are connected, uh, no information about um, how they died or any other identifying factors about who they are. Priya, I know you've been speaking to residents in the area and neighbors. What have you learned? Well, neighbors tell us that uh, the suspect lived in this house uh, along with his sister, his parents, and his grandmother. Uh, so we also have heard that uh, the basement of the apartment was rented out to tenants, and we haven't been able to speak with any of them. But we did hear from a former tenant of that building. Uh, she says that she knew the son and that he was uh, a very kind man and that she had never had any problems with him when she lived uh, in the same building as them. Uh, we also have heard uh, on social media from uh, people who believe they knew uh, the victims. Uh, there's a, a lot of shock and sadness being expressed there as well. All right, Priya Sam is a Global News reporter, and you can see Priya's report tonight on Global News at 5.30 and 6 o'clock, simulcast on this radio station. Thank you, Priya. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Now, Priya just sort of mentioned what it is that she has found out fairly easily, sort of thing that the police are not saying. And we're going to go to the phone lines shortly. I want to say again that give... Give us your thoughts on this, 416-870-6400, star 640 on your cell, whether or not you think that there is just a, a systemic issue here where police just don't give us enough information. Because here, let's take you step by step through the things that the York Regional Police are saying and are not saying. Here is the uh, York, pardon me, York Regional Police Constable Andy Pattenden saying police are not looking for anyone else, but hey, then says, don't look to us for any more info. We are not looking for any further suspects in this case at this time. Uh, we do believe that the man we have in custody that's now been charged uh, is responsible for these murders and now facing four charges of first-degree murder. Uh, obviously the most serious offences in this country. Uh, so as far as information at this point in time coming out, we're going to be very limited in what we can provide as most of that is now evidence before the courts. Now, you know that police know all of these details that are being withheld. There are charges of first-degree murder that does not happen without information. Obviously, if reporters know that these are family members and the accused lived in the home, the police know this as well. Now, let's move to how did police actually find out? How did they get called to this address? Again, police will not say. We're not providing details on where that first call came from at this point in time, other than to say that the report that we had received was that there may be multiple people possibly injured inside the residence. That's the call that we responded to. Uh, and then when we got to the front door of the house, that's where we confronted the man, uh, that 23-year-old man who's now in custody. Uh, and then officers went inside and found the bodies of the deceased people. And then again, you're not getting much more information here. And I, I, you know, there is obviously something that we have to balance. We must balance the investigation, but we also must balance that with the public need to know. 
And if this is a case where we are no longer looking for a suspect and we have a charge, then I think the question has to be, why is it that we are withholding information that it is clear that the police have? And they hide behind this all the time. And I don't mean to leave it all on the police here because the entire legal system is like this. I've covered courts. I have covered police for years. And this happens all the time. They hold these press conferences and they tell you nothing. And you wonder why. And then we have situations like with what happened with Cam H and Zevin Kong and the police not telling people. And then you ask yourself, you know, are we in good hands here? Do we have the trust for people, for police, that, that they are making the decisions? You know, I feel for the constable here who has a tough job of updating the public while saying essentially nothing. You know, there's lots of information that's not available at this point in time. And like I mentioned, uh, this is a case now before the courts, four counts of first-degree murder. So any sort of evidentiary information is something that we're not going to be able to provide at this point in time. Do you know if there's uh, if this family that the church has extended family, have they been notified and they've been there? I don't know if there's been any next of kin notification at this point. That's all I have for now. Thank you very much. And that's pretty much the way it went. I don't have anything. I can't tell you. I can't tell you. Douglas is on the line as I'm taking calls on whether or not you think police just don't give out enough information because they have the power not to. Douglas, do you agree that the police are withholding too much information or do you put the trust in the authorities? Well, I agree with you, but by saying that, don't you notice the York Region Police, and, and I don't want to slam any of our police force, especially the job they have today, but if it's, say, global at 6 o'clock and you're reporting something from Peel, you get more insight from the Peel side. That if you go to the Metro, you get more, and it seems like... Yeah, don't, the, you're absolutely right, Doug, and I'll just, I'll just move on from there quickly, if you don't mind, that, that there is a significant difference between police forces. Peel is not very forthcoming with information. York's not bad. Toronto's pretty good. Durham, no, not at all. Quickly, we only have time for one more call. Here's Adam in North York. You don't think that the police need, or, you know, it, it, the public doesn't deserve more information at this point on this case? No, uh, we've, we've got the guy, you're not in danger, that's all you need to know, and we're taking him to trial. What else do we need to know? All right, Adam, appreciate that. You know what makes you look old and out of date? A minivan. Apparently. And I apologize to those of you driving a minivan right now, but I don't make this up. A new survey says that drivers are trading in those minivans for SUVs. According to J.D. Power, minivans made up less than 3% of all new vehicles sold last year, a considerable drop from 2005 when the 1 million minivans sold across the country made up 6.5% of the market. It seems the kids who grew up riding in the bucket seats of the ultimate mom mobile don't want one for their own kids. They see minivans as expensive with the nerd stigma still attached. Young families these days are opting more for SUVs. Currently, only four car companies, Toyota, Honda, Fiat, Chrysler, and Kia, even offer minivans as a part of their lineup. Sherry Preston, ABC News. So, nerds, beware. The minivan is not the look you're going for. Also, nerds, like the ones down in the basements playing video games. Thank you. 
This one to all the fathers out there, all the parents out there that are concerned that their kids are doing nothing but wasting their lives playing video games. A 16-year-old, Kyle Gerstoff of Pennsylvania, won $3 million in the first Fortnite World Cup solo championship. That competition taking place Sunday at the Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York. Are you kidding me? At the Arthur Ashe Stadium? No longer serve and volley? Instead, it's all about taking the L? Words can't explain it, he said. He goes by the name Bugga. Three million bucks for playing video games. Keep that in mind. Have you been north of the city? Have you been to the Muskoka region this summer? Well, it turns out a lot of people just have not. There is growing concern about the economy this summer in the Muskoka region. And Morgan Campbell is a global news reporter who is reporting on this very thing today and joins me on the phone. Hi, Morgan. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Are you are you in the Muskoka region? I'm actually at Deerhurst Resort right now. Oh, that's, that speak. sounds awful. Oh, my gosh. It's just a horrible assignment <laughs> up here, I must tell you. <laughs> So, you know what, it's it's really interesting because it depends who you talk to, much like Mother Nature and, and uh, the weather she threw at the region earlier this year. It's a bit of a mixed bag. Here at Deerhurst, they're saying that um, it was a bit of a slow start, but things are picking up. July is actually a record setter over last year, which is fabulous. But if you look at some of the other smaller business, like this uh, Do Muskoka clothing retailer I spoke to, they say that their business uh, is down anywhere between 70 to 80%. People just aren't spending money uh, the same way that they were before. And, and they think that really they're noticing a bit of a decrease in foot traffic. But the one common message um, across, um, you know, Huntsville and Bracebridge is Muskoka is open for business. And let me tell you, they definitely are. Um, I've been completely welcomed with open arms. I've been lucky enough to be up here twice working on this story so far. But, um, of course, you know, the bureaucrats really want people to come up here. Just because the flooding happened doesn't mean that uh, – that you know, Muskoka washed away with the uh, with the river. You know what? You know what? Maybe they should call the premier and get a couple of those sweet open for business signs put up. That'll fix everything. <laughs> well, you know they could. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know if they if they're feeling that just yet. But let me tell you, um, they are welcoming quite a few people in Huntsville. Huntsville seems to be um, a bit of a, a hot spot for not just the tourism aspect, but shopping. When I was down there today, tons of people on the street for a Monday. You would think most people, um, like us, would have to return back to work after the weekend, uh, but that really wasn't the case. What else is going on there? Because I, I understand that there's a, a two stories kind of going on at the same time, and, and they almost seem like they would cancel each other out, which is on one side you're seeing a bit of an economic slowdown in some sectors, and then the other side people can't get work. I mean, they can't get help. They, they're looking to hire people, but they just can't find anybody to hire. Well, you're exactly right. Um, finding people who are willing to stay on and commit um, to the season. I mean, Muskoka is trying to become a a four-season destination is tough. Um, I heard of a landscaping company that's offering a gardener position $26 to start. 
um, big money to be a gardener, um, and they can't fill the job. Now, I haven't had a chance to get over to Port Carling yet, but apparently in Port Carling, Tim Hortons has been closing up shop some days at 4 o'clock because they don't have any evening staff. Um, so, I mean, it's here's the problem. You know, I spoke with an RV retailer today, and he said, the issue is is that people are attracted to the city, you know, the the allure of the bright lights and and the and the you know prospect of maybe making more cash. But when you factor in the the cost of living, um, you can still live up here and and make decent money and still have a, a good lifestyle. So finding those good quality employees seems to be seems to be rather tough. Well, speaking of tough, I guess you'll just be kicking it back at Deerhurst today and uh, maybe getting yourself a Frappuccino. Um, are, are you getting yeah. out in the water at all? Are you, what else are you doing? Are they touring you around? Tell me they're treating you right. I'm hitting some of the hot spots here. I, would, I was just checking out the golf course, although I think with this deadline, I'm not going to have any time to, uh, to play any, any holes. But uh, no, you know what? I've been up in uh, Bracebridge just checking out the downtown core. Of course, the water, everyone is drawn to the water and those big, comfy Muskoka chairs. Oh, I've yes. definitely been in a couple of them so far, but don't tell the boss. All right, Morgan, <laughs> yeah, your secret is safe with me and all of the people listening, probably the boss included. Thank you. <laughs> we can You can see uh, Morgan's uh, report tonight on Global News at 5.30, simulcast on this radio station at 6. Thanks again. Thank you. I want to tell you a quick dumb teenager story, this one coming out of North Dakota where a teenager has been injured by a bison. He was visiting a national park, national park, the Theodore Roosevelt National Park, and what he did is he walked between two bull bison that had been fighting. And one of the bison charged the teen. He was struck in the back, gored in the thigh, tossed about six feet in the air. He's going to be okay. Here's just the thing to do. Don't, like, you know this whole thing when you were a kid, they say, like, never walk between parked cars. It's the same for, for fighting bison. All right? Oh, poor kid. I, I, I'm going to finish up, if I may, by taking you to Las Vegas and what I believe may be a sign of the approaching apocalypse. A migration of grasshoppers have been, has been sweeping through the Vegas area, It's attributed to wet weather several months ago. Here are some tourists from St. Louis talking about the bug invasion. Oh my God, it's like... It's creepy. It really is. Like they all on the side of the buildings. They dead everywhere. Stepping on them. Yes, all crunchy. It's gross. Now, an expert in all of this kind of thing says grasshoppers traveling north to central Nevada is unusual but not unprecedented. They pose no danger. So, we are at grasshopper slash locust. Let me just run you through what else we got to come. Uh, you got your thunderstorm or hail and fire. Boils. Boils are always popular in terms of a plague. You got your pestilence of livestock. Wild animals or flies. Lice and gnats frogs, and blood. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas unless the locusts get into your luggage and you bring them home. It's rough.
wealth and ruin. <laughs>